0: Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Acts chapter 24. We continue to make our way verse by verse through the Acts of the Apostles. And sometimes when we come to these historical narratives, it is easy to cover large sections of Scripture at one time. And so we will be looking at the entire chapter here this morning, all 27 verses. Cotton Mather, the great preacher of about 300 years ago, back in New England, said, and I quote, the great design and intention of the office of a Christian preacher is to restore the throne and dominion of God in the souls of men, end quote. And certainly that is my passion whenever I stand in this pulpit all week long, the world tries to tear down the throne of God and now we come to a time where he will be restored Lord willing and certainly as we look at the word of God it is always my passion and my prayer that through the preaching of the word the embers of your spiritual life will be fanned into full flame and as we look at the word I trust that each of us will be compelled by the irresistible displays of the glory of God that emerge from the text so that when it's all said and done, we leave here loving him more deeply and serving him more fully. And quite frankly, if you sit under the preaching of the word and you leave unaffected, You leave without any sense of conviction in your own heart. There's something wrong. And hopefully it won't be with the preacher, but with the listener. So with that in mind, may I give you some background here to set the stage for what we are going to look at. This is a fascinating text revealing the depravity of man as well as the grace of God. And and also we get to observe a fearless preacher here in the Apostle Paul. We're going to witness the tragedy of wasted opportunity where a man and his wife in a position of influence have two years to hear the truth of the gospel from one of God's choicest servants, the Apostle Paul, and yet they refuse to embrace the truth like so many people today. They prefer the fleeting pleasures of the world rather than the glories of heaven. They love their sin more than they love the only God who would forgive that sin. They prefer darkness over light because their deeds are evil. We're going to see that today. We're going to see a wicked leader who sat in an undeserved seat of judgment to pronounce Some kind of sentence on God's man, and yet the judge, not the prisoner, ends up trembling. Thus, I've entitled my discourse to you this morning, The Prisoner and the Trembling Judge. And, as I alluded to earlier, we're going to see a preacher who boldly preaches the truth regardless of the audience. Unlike the modern preacher that strains to address the felt needs of his audience Things like self-esteem and financial peace and purpose in life and success and so forth. The Apostle Paul, as you will see, is going to cut right to the very heart of the issue with this man and his wife. And he's going to speak about the matters of righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come. As we examine this very fascinating text, I wish to focus on four themes that I believe reveal various doctrinal truths as well as practical applications to our lives. We're going to see, first of all, the Sanhedrin's vague accusations. Secondly, we're going to see the Apostle's successful refutation. Thirdly, we're going to see the governor's expedient placation. And finally, the Apostle's frightening confrontation. Now, Again, by way of context, the Romans have rescued Paul from the temple. Paul has addressed the Sanhedrin consisting of Sadducees and Pharisees who were divided socially, politically, as well as theologically, especially over the issue of the resurrection. And Paul has appealed to his fellow Pharisees, saying in chapter 23, verse 6, I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. And when he did that, he divided them because the Pharisees believed that, the Sadducees did not, and bedlam ensued, and it ended up the Pharisees actually defending Paul, which is a rather hilarious turn of events. And then the Romans have to rescue him again. They were made aware of a Jewish plot that Paul's nephew actually comes and reveals to them, and the Romans assemble 70 cavalrymen. And 200 spearmen, and they sneak out of of Jerusalem to get to Caesarea at night to let the governor handle the situation. Now, it's important. You can bear with me just a little bit more. I want to really make sure you understand some key principles here in the word theological principles that really make this text come alive. Friends, you must understand that the Pharisees in that day were much closer to Christianity than the Sadducees. And the primary reason for that was this issue of the resurrection. You see, they knew that this was an essential truth for the promised messianic kingdom that they longed for. They just didn't believe that Jesus was their Messiah. And repeatedly in Acts, we read about Paul going into the synagogues. For example, in chapter 19, verses 8 through 10, we read that he, he's reasoning and persuading them about what? The kingdom of God. Again, keep in mind, what's essential to understanding the kingdom for the Jew is the resurrection, as you will see. Later in Acts chapter 28, the Roman uh, Jews we're going to see, they're going to come to Paul. They're going to come to his residence and they're going to have a prolonged meeting with him. The text says from morning till evening. And what was the topic? The kingdom of God and its king, the Lord Jesus Christ, as set forth in the law and the prophets. In fact, in Acts chapter 28, verse 20, he speaks to his Jewish kinsmen. And he's wanting them to understand why he's now imprisoned, and he says, it's for the hope of Israel." a hope, quite frankly, that he spoke of four times in total in Acts, Acts uh, chapter 23, verse 6, 24: 15, 26, 6 through seven, and 28:20. 20. Now I give that to those of you who want to somehow argue. That the church has replaced Israel and that we're living in the kingdom now. Because nothing can be further from the truth. Paul constantly was talking about the kingdom. I'm imprisoned for the hope of Israel. This was the hope of the long promised and anticipated messianic kingdom and its consequent physical and spiritual blessings. Now, The Jews were very familiar with this hope that included a glorious resurrection of Israelites. And that's why the Pharisees were so much closer to the Christians than the Sadducees. They knew that this resurrection would have to come for these people to be a part of the kingdom. This is vividly detailed in Ezekiel, remember, in his vision Of the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37. There in verse 5, God says, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin and put breath in you that you may come alive and you will know that I am the Lord. And then verse 12, he says, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves My people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves. My people, I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. Now. All through Acts, we read about the proclamation of the kingdom being established, contingent upon Israel's reception of their king. And we also read about the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones that began at Pentecost. These being the spiritual and royal nucleus of the coming kingdom. In fact, Alba J. McLean, that great theologian of days gone by, says this, and I quote, This preaching was initially addressed exclusively to Jews, but as the tide of Jewish opposition grew, there was a change in emphasis. The period begins with the kingdom in first place, the church having almost no distinguishable separate identity. But as the period progresses in time, the church begins to assume a more prominent place with a glory of its own, while the established kingdom becomes more remote. He went on to say, contemporaneously, there is a shift from emphasis upon Jewish national primacy toward a universality in which national distinguish tends to disappear. Though the components of apostolic preaching are so closely related that one part cannot be wholly isolated, its subject matter appears to have had three distinct main emphases. One concerning Jesus and the way of salvation Two concerning the kingdom and three concerning the church, end quote. So this is what we see in Acts. And gradually now, all of the issues of the kingdom are going to be, as we will see, postponed and the matters of the church will become more and more to the forefront. And also, as we look at the text that I'm about to get to, believe it or not, we are going to see. The omnipotent providence of God ruling over the affairs of man and delivering his servant Paul from his beloved enemies, God's beloved enemies, his own chosen people, the Jews, and now sending him to the Gentiles. Remember, now he's on his way to Rome. He's already in Caesarea with the Gentiles there, and now he's on his way to Rome. And all of this, of course, is an act of divine judgment upon God's covenant people the Messianic kingdom on earth with with its glorious resurrection is going to be postponed now until the Lord returns. Now, as we come to chapter 24, here's what's happening. Paul is under house arrest, he's in the governor's house, and a man named Marcus Antonius Felix is the procurator or in other words the governor of Judea that the Romans have set in place. He is as we read history an evil man who had once been a slave but because of his brother pallas who had connections with the emperor claudius being a freedman of claudius's mother because of this felix is ultimately elevated to a position of power and prominence that he really did not deserve in fact, the Roman historian Tacitus described his character and career by saying, quote, he exercised the power of a king with the mind of a slave, end quote. A little more background on Felix. Felix had three successive wives. They were all from royal birth, so he did quite well for himself. In fact, the first one was the granddaughter of Antony and Cleopatra, And finally, his third wife that we're going to read about today, Drusilla, was the youngest daughter of Herod Agrippa the first. He was the one, by the way, that murdered James. So she grew up in a home that understood Christianity. And that's going to be an important feature in understanding the text this morning. In fact, her great uncle was Herod Antipas that slew John the Baptist. And her grandfather was Herod the Great. And you will recall he was the one that tried to kill all of the infants in Bethlehem. This lady, Drusilla, was a Jewish Jewish lady. She, at this particular stage in Acts 24, would have been about 20 years old. So, a young woman. In fact, we know that when she was only 16, she had been betrothed to the king of Emesa, which was a petty state of Syria, But Felix came along and used a magician to convince her to leave him and to come live with Felix. And so she became his wife instead. But dear friends, despite his lowly beginnings and his fortuitous advancement, we can see that he was God's man for this particular time in history. Eventually, we also know that his cruelty in handling Various uprisings so infuriated the Jews that ultimately he was removed from office and was replaced by a man named Festus. So we come to chapter 24. And we look, first of all, at the Sanhedrin's vague accusations. Evidently, they've been summoned now to Caesarea from Jerusalem to press charges. Verse one, after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders with an attorney named Tertullus, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. This man must have been an expert in Roman jurisprudence. You see, the Sanhedrin knew that they really had no case against Paul. In fact, the Asian Jews, you will recall, who knew Paul from back at Ephesus and other places, they were the ones that first initiated all of the hostilities against Paul, and they're not even showing up here. And so the Sanhedrin knew that they were running a real risk in making charges that could be reversed against them and them being the ones that could be accused of starting the riots. The text goes on to say, after Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, since we have through you attained much peace And since by your providence, reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere. Most excellent Felix with all thankfulness. Blah, blah, blah. Ridiculous flattery. Not a word of truth in any of it. He was as disingenuous as he was manipulative. Welcome to the world of politics. And as we go on, we see. In the middle of verse two. The accusations, the vague allegations, since we have through you attained much peace and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere. Most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness, but that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us by your kindness a brief hearing. For we have found this man a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to desecrate the temple. And when we arrested him and then we arrested him and we wanted to judge him according to our own law. But Lysias, the commander, came along and with much violence, took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. And by examining him yourselves concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. All right. There's no eyewitnesses, but here are the allegations. Number one, in the eyes of the Jews, this guy's a real pest. All right. Boy, that's a real biggie, isn't it? Secondly, he stirred up unrest among the Jews worldwide. Thirdly, he was a ringleader of what they considered to be a Jewish sect. And then fourth, he tried to desecrate the temple. But, dear friends, this betrays what they were really all about. Really what they were saying to him is, look, just hand this guy over to us and we'll take care of this for you. We know this is this is a difficult thing to rule on. After all, we're sure you will agree that this really falls within our jurisdiction, not yours. Now, I find it interesting, by the way, how many times in Acts the Holy Spirit records the malicious, slanderous, deceptive accusations of the Jews against Christians. And in every case, the opposite is true. And repeatedly we see that the Christians never become revolutionaries. They never become anarchists. They are never scheming against the, the ruling authorities, whether it be the Jews or the Romans. But they're always the villains in the eyes of the world, when in reality they're the victims. The reason why, by the way, Christians don't do this, is our commission is to go and make disciples, not make governments. So they spin the truth in their favor, even implying that Claudius Lysias The Roman commander acted inappropriately. You know, as I was thinking about this, I thought, how many times we tend to spin things to our own advantage? And that's what's going on here. Just think of the last time you were offended by somebody. And if you're brutally honest with yourself, think about the subtle ways you kind of did your own little spin on the truth. You're hopelessly biased in your own favor as you try to demean someone else, the process goes something like this. First of all, you, you, you have to exaggerate some real or perceived sin or offense. And then you have to go on a witch hunt with this person or this group, whatever the case may be, to find more fault. Now, there's really no effort to go and hear both sides or to be fair minded or to get the facts or uh, to be kind and merciful and conciliatory. Oh no, we can't have that. But rather, what you do is you stack charges. You know how it works. One thing after another. And typically, those charges are based on innuendo and, and gossip and perception, but very seldom on solid facts. And then, very quickly, some unsuspecting soul that doesn't realize he or she is being scrutinized, turns from kind of a a mild offender to an axe murderer, and they don't even know it. And the character assassination is in full swing now, and the accuser continues to distort the truth based upon unfounded suspicions and biased opinions, and they fan the flames, typically, of their hatred and justify their vengeance all the while, Trying to recruit others to join with them. Sound familiar? I've been guilty of that. You have too. Never choosing to believe the best, but rather we tend to choose to believe the worst. We hear what we want to hear. We don't go to these people and and privacy seek for clarification and, if necessary, confrontation and, and, Lord willing, reconciliation. But instead, we choose accusation. We choose insinuation, castigation, defamation, and ultimately separation. We see this all the time in partisan politics, don't we? This is very dynamic. And friends, sometimes it happens in our marriages. Sometimes it happens in our families. Sometimes, tragically, it happens in our churches. We expect this from non-Christians, but it should never happen with true believers, but sometimes it does. So this is what's going on here. And we see this venomous hatred now directed toward the Apostle Paul, ultimately from the father of lies himself. Now, let's look at the Apostle's successful refutation, beginning in verse 10. When the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense, since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship neither in the temple nor in the synagogues nor in the city itself. Did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot? In other words, during this whole time, I wasn't even talking with anybody, much less causing a riot. There's no eyewitness to any of this. He goes on to say, nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. But this I admit to you, that according to the way, in other words, Christianity, which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. Now, Friends, it's important for you to understand that. When he says, I do serve the God of our fathers, that was an ancient appellation of the God of Israel that they all understood very well. That was a title that they understood completely. And thus he was proving that he worshiped the God of Israel, the same God as the Jews. He was not part of some sect. And then when he talks about believing everything in accordance with the law that is written in the prophets, He even gives more evidence to his orthodoxy here. Also exposing the Sadducees as the real heretics, because they did not believe everything in accordance with the law that is written in the prophets. You see, they were the ones that did not believe in the plenary or, shall we say, the full inspiration of the Old Testament. They only believed that the Pentateuch was inspired. So Paul goes on in verse 15, having a hope in God which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And once again, now, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he turns the tables on the Sanhedrin, exposing the heretical beliefs of the Sadducees. And once again, he begins to shatter this very fragile alliance between the, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And I'm sure... Felix is kind of grinning at this point because he can see what's happening. He can see the Sadducees getting steamed and the Pharisees looking over at them. And here we go. It's interesting as we read the biblical record of the Acts of the Apostles, we quickly see that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was their dominant theme whenever they preached. In fact, the qualification of an apostle had to include that they had been a witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Because, friends, once again, please understand this. This was the certain hope of the Jewish people down through their history. And certainly it's the hope of Christianity, the resurrection from the dead. Abraham believed in the resurrection of the dead that we read earlier in Hebrews eleven nineteen. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. Job 19, verses 25 and 26. He said, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will take his stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed. Yet from my flesh, not my spirit, but from my flesh, I shall see God. And in Isaiah chapter 26, 19, Isaiah gave the same hope. He said, your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy for your due is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Even Daniel believed in the resurrection of the dead. In chapter 12 and verse 2, he said, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And Jesus said in John five twenty-eight. That an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. His referring to the Son of Man, to Jesus himself. It's as if he's saying He, they will hear my voice and they will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. And Paul defended the hope of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, that great resurrection chapter. He said, if there is no resurrection of the dead... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is vain. And he went on to say, if you have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. In other words, how ridiculous would that be? But he went on in verse 20, he said, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by one man came death. By a man came also the resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam all died, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So, to be sure, notwithstanding the charges of heresy against him, Paul did preach and believe the orthodox orthodox teachings of the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, Once again, exposing the Sadducees as the real heretics. He went on in his defense in verse 16. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. Now, after several several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were some Jews from Asia. Now, folks, stop here. I can just see Paul right now kind of looking around. There were some Jews from Asia, and he went on to say, who ought to have been present before you and to make accusation. Because you see, dear friends, that was the law. The point is, where are they? They should be present before you to make accusation if they should have anything against me. Or else, let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council. Other than for this one statement, which I shouted out while standing among them. And here it is for the resurrection of the dead. I am on trial before you today. Bottom line, what Paul was saying is there is absolutely no substance to these accusations being brought against me. These Jewish leaders simply despise my theology because, quite frankly, it exposes their hypocrisy. And it places in jeopardy their position of power and influence. And quite frankly, and Felix, you know, this is true. It threatens their legalized extortion among the Jewish people. That's all that's going on here. Well, all of this placed Felix in a very precarious situation. He's now on the horns of a dilemma. And here's why. Obviously, he could see through the ridiculous allegations under Roman law. There, there, there was nothing here you could charge Paul with. There was nothing of any substance. But he was afraid of somehow infuriating the Jews. He didn't want an uprising from the Jews. That would look very bad for his political resume, it might even cost him his job. So, like most good politicians, what does he choose? He chooses expediency over morality. (laughs) He chooses convenience over justice. And in order to placate the Jews, notice how he rules. And this brings us to my third little point in this outline. The governor's expedient placation beginning in verse 22. But Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way. Let me stop there for a second. In other words, we are told here that he understood the teachings of Christianity. And I'm sure a lot of that was from his wife, Drusilla, and her family who had killed so many of its leaders. So Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off. In other words, the Sanhedrin saying, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will decide your case. You see, this was a very convenient thing for him to do since the Sanhedrin had implicated Lysias in this whole matter in their prosecution. So he says, when when he comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. Well, obviously, Felix was more concerned with his own political future than he was for justice. He had to protect this Roman citizen, namely Paul, because he hadn't violated any law, Roman law. He had to also curry the favor of the Jews rather than antagonize them. So he puts the whole thing off. Let's just kind of, you know, wait for a later time. But we're also going to see that he also wanted to hold out for something, a bribe. This guy was corrupt to the very core. But what Felix did not understand, and we must never forget this, dear friends. What he did not understand is that a sovereign and merciful God was ultimately ruling over all of these matters. Including bringing Paul into his very household to present the truth of the gospel Felix and to his wife. But ultimately, God was ruling in an effort to fulfill what he had promised, namely that eventually Paul would go and serve the Lord in Rome itself. And so for two years now, Felix and his wife, Drusilla, are going to hear the truth of the word of God from The Apostle Paul, and this brings us to our final scenario in this fascinating saga. Finally, the Apostle's frightening confrontation. Notice in verse 24, but some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he was discussing righteousness, self control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to, used to send for him quite often and converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. As I look at this text, it is intriguing to me that there is never once a hint of Paul complaining. You never hear him moaning and groaning that somehow God is not fair. Instead, you see a man that is content in all things. He had learned a very important lesson that we should all learn. And that is that God often decrees delays in our life to dispense his grace. Such was the case with Felix and Drusilla. And I want you to notice something in verse 24. They asked Paul to come and speak with them. It says about faith in Christ Jesus And then it went on to say, and he explained to them how God wants them to feel fulfilled in their life. He explained to them how God wants you to be successful and to have a sense of purpose and financial peace and be and be wealthy. And Paul spent a great deal of time trying to determine their felt psychological needs because he wanted them to see that God doesn't want them to be disappointed. He tried to extract from them some of their big hurts in life and express to them how God doesn't want you to feel this way. In fact, God is a God who wants to make it all go away. Obviously, Paul had no desire to please men, did he? Nor did he fear men. That we read that he was discussing righteousness, self control, and the judgment to come. And as a result, Felix became frightened. Beloved, a man will never come to a saving knowledge of Christ until he first understands he needs to be saved, until he understands judgment. And while we do not see it here, I'm sure that over those two years, Paul exposed the ways that this man had defrauded the poor. I'm sure that by the power of the Spirit of God, he, can, he could look into that man's eyes and remind him how he had tortured the innocent. Remind him how he had preferred bribes over justice and how he had slavishly served His own lusts in every imaginable way. His lust for sex and power and prestige and wealth. There was never a fleeting thought in the apostle's mind that he needed to be seeker sensitive. Or somehow contextualize the message to, to address the felt needs of his audience. That's why Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God unto salvation. You see, the gospel transcends all of those things and focuses right in on the issues of the heart. The issues of righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And I'm sure he also took time and he would turn to Drusilla and kindly but forthrightly look her in the eye and expose every secret thought of her imagination. I'm sure that he looked at her and talked with her about her deceptions, her immorality, her hypocrisy, her fornications, about all of the vices that would one day testify against her when she stood before a holy God. No doubt he spoke at length about the resurrection of the just and the unjust, as we've read. A bodily resurrection where the saint will be outfitted for heaven and the sinner outfitted for the torments of an eternal hell. Perhaps he warned them of the horrifying sentence that the wicked will one day hear that Jesus said in Matthew twenty-five forty-one: Depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Perhaps he reminded them at length about judgment, about hell. In fact, when we read the Bible, we see that hell is a place of disembodied spirits, a place of everlasting punishment, fire, burnings, a furnace of fire. It's called a lake of fire, a place of fire and brimstone, a place of unquenchable fire, a place of outer darkness, a a place of devouring, devouring fire, a place prepared for the devil and his angels, a place where body and soul will suffer forever. Perhaps He spoke to them about the words that Jesus used when He warned sinners in Matthew five twenty-nine, in verse 30, of the whole body being thrown into hell where he said in chapter 10 and 28 of Matthew, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. I'm sure Paul told them about a place of physical suffering beyond our ability to fathom. A place where the worm never dies. A place where... The fire is never quenched where, according to Revelation 20 and verse 10, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. A place where every lust on earth will be exaggerated, but can never be fulfilled, can never be satisfied. A place of unimaginable pain, of indescribable darkness and loneliness, a place where there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. I've heard this before, so I'll beat you to the punch. Come on, preacher. Get off the hellfire and brimstone. We all know that that's not really true. That is just symbolic. That is just figurative. That is just metaphorical. That is not a real place. Dear friends, if that were so, why would Felix have trembled? If that is so, we have nothing to fear. Let's just all eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die and we just kind of cease to exist. There's no consequences to sin, so let's just all live it up. But friends, hell is as real as the holy God that has prepared it. That's the bad news. The good news is for those who have been saved by the blood of the Lamb... It is a place that holds no fear. It is a place where they will never be. As we read in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. Well, I want no part of a God like that. Then, dear friends, you will have no part of Him. And He will have no part of you. In fact, He will place you in a place where you will be separated from Him for eternity. I can just imagine the many hours Paul spent with them. I can imagine that great apostle unsheathing the sword of the spirit and wielding it skillfully upon them. That sword, the word of God that is living and active and sharper than any two edged sword that can judge the very thoughts and intentions of the heart. I can just hear him piercing through all of their excuses and justifications and rationalizations and ridiculous man-made theology. And the result of all of that was an unholy fear of God. Because again, we read that Felix became frightened. And I'm sure that that pompous governor felt the pains of guilt pierce his heart. That feeling that every sinner despises and seeks to suppress at all costs. This was the Holy Spirit bringing truth to bear upon his seared conscience. Now might I add that this was not some prevenient grace of divine regeneration that would cause a sinner to come to repentance because that did not happen. Grace that is spurned is never omnipotent grace that saves. But rather, we know that even the most hardened sinner, the most vile and wretched man or woman, has the law of God written upon their heart. This is the certain effect, therefore, of those who are exposed by the light of divine holiness. Job spoke of this in 1524, where he says that trouble and anguish make them afraid and they overpower them. And in chapter 18, verse 11, he speaks of the sinner and the terrors that they experience. He says, Terrors frighten them on every side and drive them to their feet. And in Proverbs 28, verse 1, we read that the wicked flee when no one pursues. And in Proverbs 127, we read that their terror comes like a storm and their destruction comes like a whirlwind when distress and anguish come upon them. And in Proverbs ten twenty four, he describes it as the fear of the wicked that will come upon them. Dear friends, this was the fear of divine judgment that terrified people all through redemptive history. We read about it, for example, with Adam. Remember when he was in the garden after he sinned? We read in Genesis three ten that he heard the voice of the Lord and was afraid because he was naked and he hid himself. This is what Saul experienced when, remember, the prophet Samuel came and confronted him over his sin. And in 1 Samuel 28, we read that immediately Saul fell length, full length on the ground and was dreadfully afraid. And there was no strength in him, for he had not eaten food all day or all night. This was what Haman experienced when the text says in Esther 7 and verse 6 that he was terrified. And it says, the adversary and enemy, Esther says, the adversary and the enemy is this man, this wicked man, Haman. And as I think about it, it was also the experience of the wicked king, Belshazzar. You remember when he saw the handwriting upon the wall in his palace. And in Daniel 5, verse 6, we read, then the king's countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. Now, friends, this is what Felix is experiencing. But frankly, a small foretaste of the horror that he will experience someday when he stands before a holy God. I want you to notice his tragic response. Verse 25, go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. What a tragic statement. And yet, what a common one. How common for people to hear the truth about their sin and the Savior. The only Savior who will forgive their sin. And then dismiss it outrightly. Or foolishly think that that judgment will never happen. It will certainly never happen to me. Or like Felix And say something like, you know, I'll consider it at another time. This bothers me. There is time enough. Perhaps later when I'm a little older and wiser, then maybe I can see things a little bit more clearly. But dear friends, please hear me. To put off what you can clearly see in youth is to utterly be blind to what you will not be able to see in old age. Opportunities in all things grow less, not more, as life progresses. That's why we are told in 2 Corinthians 6.2, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. In fact, we read in Hebrews 3.8, the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. And friends, please hear this. As, as life goes on, The noise of the world will gradually drown out the Spirit's warning. And every man and woman who has ever perished in their sin had a last warning. Maybe this is yours today. I don't know. But you should treat it as such. Felix trembled. But you know what is even worse than that? is for someone to hear the warning of divine judgment and not tremble. That is the scariest of all. Because that is a sign of divine abandonment. It's a sign that you have been spiritually dead a long time. You know, it's one thing to gaze upon what you perceive to be a corpse at a distance and not see it move and think, I wonder if that is a dead body. And obviously that would require further investigation. But dear friends, it is altogether another matter to smell the rancid odor of decomposition emanating from a corpse that gives final testimony, even at a distance, that that body is dead. And those of you who do not tremble, those of you that do not know Christ and you don't tremble, you are doubly Dead. And you have the rancid odor of death upon you. And all I can do is ask you as a servant of God to cry out for mercy. And for you, when the horror of your sentence is read. Let me tell you what the Lord has said he will say. In Proverbs 1 and verse 26, he says, I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes, when your terror comes like a storm, and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Oh, dear sinner. And you know who you are. Don't procrastinate like Felix and ignore this warning. This may be your last I must confess that this is the greatest burden of my heart as a minister of the gospel. The hardest thing about my calling is seeing people who refuse to embrace the truth of the gospel, knowing what awaits them. You know, the hardest work of a minister is not in the preaching, but in the mourning. The hardest work is mourning over those who hear the admonitions, who hear the warnings. And reject them outright. You can laugh at me. You can mock me. You can even hate me. But what I share with you is the truth based upon the word of God. And I just pray that you will not neglect the grace of God that's being offered to you even today. Let's bow our heads together. Father, you have said that it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And we thank you that even though our hearts are stirred in a very solemn way, in a very fearful way, as we think about those who do not know Christ and the consequent judgment that awaits them, Lord, even though this is a very troubling theme, it provides for us with its dark and stark contrast the glorious light of the gospel of grace. Lord, how I pray that if there be any sinner within the sound of my voice that they will run to this light that exposes them and cry out for that undeserved mercy that can be theirs. Lord, we thank You for the gospel. We thank You for Your love. And we thank You that You can be glorified in Your forgiveness, in Your grace, in Your mercy, as well as even in Your wrath. Because indeed, You are a holy God. Lord, I pray that by the power of Your Spirit, these glorious truths will take root in our hearts and bear much fruit. I pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus and for His glorious sake. Amen.